Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, something that is on the horizon. Uh, in the latest surge of technological evolution, uh, one titan stands out, reshaping our landscape with the silent swiftness of a revolution. Artificial intelligence, it's a term that sparks a spectrum of emotion. It's uh, exhilarating the dawn of a new era to trepidation about the unknowns it brings along. Okay, I'm going to stop talking about it that way. Uh, the funny thing is I was using ChatGPT uh, specifically to try to see if it could mimic me. So I put in, use the voice of Bakshafri to create an introduction on artificial intelligence uh, so that I can uh, introduce the, the show for this week. And as you can tell, it's not perfect, right? Because uh, that doesn't really sound like me at all. <laughs> but it is what it is. It sounds there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know, there's a lot of descriptive terms and everything there that made it sound, uh, you know, made it sound uh, very important. But uh, that being said, we're going to talk about this because it's a very, uh, very important space to be in. I have not figured out how to invest in it. There has to be a way to. But um, and whoever figures out, you know, apart from maybe trying to, you know, get essentially do the tech play where you're investing in in Microsoft and, uh, you know, and maybe in Google and, and some of these other things, uh, you know, I, I haven't really figured out how to how to really do that. But I, you know, I think it's important to just kind of understand the big the big play here, the big vision so that you can you know keep an eye out for it, because that's when you. Uh, if you're actually looking for, you know, opportunities, that's when you're most likely to find them. Uh, this week, we have a uh, really interesting guy um, here to talk about artificial intelligence. And and uh, the reason I like this guy is because he has nothing to do with money. He is an, a true academic. So uh, this week, we have on uh, Professor Russell Newman. He is uh, a really interesting guy. He's a leading mind from uh, NYU one of the founders of the Media Technology Lab at MIT, he's got a really deep understanding of this space. I mean, he's not a, a guy who comes at this with any particular financial angle or anything, and that actually makes it more interesting because you can look at this and and you know try to try to three, see through the through the lens of this guy who's you know at the uh, who's really looking at it as a 
a place where there's going to be intersections of technology, media, uh, and investment. Anyway, that's what we're going to talk about this week. When we come back, uh, it is uh, Professor Russell Newman. Welcome back to the show, everyone. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Russ Newman. Russ is a professor of media technology at NYU, a founding faculty of the uh, faculty member of the MIT Media Laboratory. He served as senior policy analyst in the White House uh, as well, um, and that was in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Russ, uh, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks for having me. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, you know the 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 title of your book actually is Evolutionary Intelligence: How Technology Will Make Us Smarter. Um, and you previously had a book called The Digital Difference, uh, Media Technology and the Theory of Communication Effects. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about um, artificial intelligence. Obviously, we, you know, you're you're one of those guys who's sort of at the forefront of this professionals who've got their head down and who are just focusing on day to day activity, like taking care of patients, you know, and or, um, uh, you know, or, or, you know, high level manager jobs or whatever. Tell us what, what is this, uh, what is the big deal about AI? What's coming down the pike that we are not necessarily seeing right now? Well, why don't we start with trying to come up with an idea of uh, how AI works and start with the simplest example and then try to understand how the phenomenon, particularly of the generative uh, AI technologies, we can get into some of the details if there's uh, interest in that. Absolutely. Um, so basically, uh, the notion that we can help uh, humans make better decisions by designing a few algorithms, uh, we used to call them expert systems. And uh, some of your uh, viewers and listeners may be familiar with expert systems and were applied in various medical areas, where you take a bunch of rules that seem to be helpful for guiding uh, a decision. Classic example is finding where in the environment we might find some oil buried under the ground. Uh, And what happened is three things. The capacity uh, of uh, what the AI folks call compute, that is computer power, the capacity to do very complex, very fast uh, manipulations of uh, formulas. The second thing was a very big database of human communication. So they've scraped billions of words from the Internet, Wikipedia, uh, the Twitter files, et cetera, to try to understand uh, what people are talking about, including historical materials to understand the, the background. And the third, and this is what's got invented in the last couple of years, is some very new uh, mathematical formulas for trying to be, make sense of millions of words with millions of calculations. So if you think about the easiest, the, the simplest decision, it says, if it's raining, take the umbrella. If it's not raining, don't take the umbrella. And and start to multiply that out. We the expert systems maybe had a hundred elements about what mm-hmm. was in the environment, make it more or less likely to find oil. What happened in the last two years is that's been ramped up 
to 180 billion. Now, when you go up to 100 or even to 1,000, we can sort of understand that. Maybe we can comprehend what it means if there are 10,000 rules. It's not likely that a human being could kind of calculate and look at 10,000 things. Uh, human psychology says we can do seven. That's about the, the maximum the brain can handle at one point in time. When you get up to 180 billion decision points, these, these uh, generative AI systems are able to predict the next word in a sentence, in fact, the next paragraph, and they begin to sound like humans responding to a question with a full paragraph or multi-paragraph answer. And these uh, new uh, applications literally in the last couple of years have moved up, ramped up to many orders of magnitude. I, I like to mention that the number of neurons in the human brain is about 89 billion. So uh, if we get uh, systems that look like they're acting human-like, uh, we shouldn't be surprised. And if they're making mistakes, cutely called hallucinations, we shouldn't be surprised either. Yeah. Now, those uh, when you talk about that um, that number of decision-making processes, that you know, is that available? I mean, who is that available to right now? Is that just um, you know the I mean, you know, listen, I, I don't know much about this stuff, but I, I knew, you know, I played around with chat GPT, for example. I mean, what that that in particular, that um, program doesn't necessarily have that 189 billion points, does it or or does it? it, it well, it's in the back end. Uh, uh -huh. When you do a search in Google, you don't see all of the different calculations that Google makes to find what would be optimized for you. And so nobody could make any sense of uh, 180 billion numbers. Uh, so if you had access to it, I don't know what you would do with it <laughs> as a human right. being. Right. But I guess so what I, you, what, yeah, what you do is you throw probes at this system and the system will respond. If you show, throw the same probe at the system twice, you're going to get a slightly different response. And what's going to be happening in the future right now, there's since it, costs many tens of millions of dollars to generate one of these systems where it's scraping uh, all of this gathered knowledge in the last 20 years. Uh, there are probably going to be the major players, uh, the, the Googles, the uh, OpenAI slash Microsoft, uh, Meta, uh, and a few others. And uh, what will happen is the specialists will take one of those engines and do some fine tuning and then sell access to a version of the main engine that's been fine-tuned to give answers that are more appropriate for, for example, the medical community. Sure. Uh, you know, you, you hear about these high-profile individuals out there, um, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, who've also been giving quite a bit of, um, you know, warnings about the, the potential of AI and all that. Uh, should we be afraid of it? We should be cautious. Any powerful technology, uh, gunpowder, uh, nuclear power. <laughs> so when they say maybe we should be careful, uh, we should take heed indeed. But I think primarily the, the notion that Siri deep down wants to kill you is uh, an anthropomorphic projection onto these technologies. We, uh, as human beings, evolved in a competitive environment with other human beings and other animals for scarce resources in the jungles and the grasslands. And we sort of project that the uh, computer next to us wants to eat our lunch, but in fact, the computer doesn't have much interest in our lunch and we can relax about that part. Our, our lunch is safe. 
Right, right. But on the other hand, there is, um, you know, I guess, I guess the question is, if you have computers that are ultimately uh, able to create so much information and decision making process, I mean, at, at what point are they just making decisions independent of us? Or is that not something that we should be worried about? Well, it's something we should be cautious about. I don't know. The notion that they would be autonomous and making decisions on their own is something that would be uh, an assigned task. It says, all right, here are the constraints among the following five. Optimize the order of the five. Hopefully, then, the humans would ultimately do the ultimate execution. In some minor cases, and it's certainly in the case of the driving of a car, those are real-time decisions that are executed by the intelligent system itself. Uh, people will note that there have been accidents, in fact, fatal accidents involving self-driving cars. Um, I guess the question is, on a per-mile basis, uh, with drunk Uncle Louie uh, driving another car, what what are the yeah. comparisons come out to? I don't know yeah. what the data is on that, but I'd, I'd want to raise that question before we condemn all self-driving cars for yeah. uh, the fact that they did get involved in accidents. How do you control for, or you can't control for, but how do you protect against, say, nefarious actors? Because that may be, that's the bigger danger of the technology, right? I mean, it's extremely powerful. And so it can be used for good things. It can be used for positive things, but obviously very negative things as well. Yes. In fact, uh, there's been discussion, uh, and uh, Sam Altman at OpenAI has even suggested quite strongly that there might be a federal agency of some kind that would focus on regulating AI. I'm strongly opposed to this. My notion is what I call the downstream strategy. If somebody uses a automobile or a gun to rob a bank, you don't regulate the automobile and, and the gun, you, you regulate the, 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 uh, the person that's for the crime and the person that, that's committed the crime. Um, so don't go after the tools. It's true that these are powerful technologies, but I don't think they uh, require special regulation uh, just because they uh, can be used by uh, malevolent people. When you think of, um, you know, when you think of uh, AI, one of the things that you had sort of alluded to was, um, you know, the, the the potential for using these to make decisions for humans and and. Do you see this in some way as sort of the next step in human evolution? I do. And that's where the title of the book comes from. Uh, basically, the, the, the underlying argument is that um, originally our tools uh, made us stronger. Our communications technologies allowed us to communicate over great distances instantly and around the world. And finally, we come to a technology that's not used to move things. Uh, but in fact, used to help us make decisions. So the argument is that uh, this technology will make us smarter. And the interesting question is, will it lead to increased inequality or decreased inequality? And the answer is probably initially when it takes special skills and uh, perhaps extra money to get access to some of these technologies, there will be the usual tradition that the rich people got the color television sets first, <laughs> and yeah. the shiny computers and cars first. But there's no reason that the average individual can't take advantage. The interfaces will be easy enough to use so that these technologies will not be only under the control of the wealthy. The other uh, very positive thing on this is, I, you know, I think about the applications of AI um, that are already sort of being used in medicine. Um, 
you know, the ability to quickly potentially identify vaccines for new viruses or uh, antibiotics for drug resistant uh, bugs and uh, all sorts of things. How far along are we in that world right now? Is that is that something we're going to see? I mean, are we talking about, um, you know, next couple of years? Are we talking about decades? What's your take on that? Well, that's a question I don't have a, a, a quick or clear answer to. Uh, obviously, they're working on it. You'd mentioned the issue of pharmaceuticals. There's a whole other technology uh, generally summarized by the term quantum computing, where comp computational challenges for folding uh, proteins uh, challenges classical computing models. So it may be that the quantum side of things, which is more or less independent of the AI work, uh, will end up being the real promising uh, engine of uh, quicker development in pharmaceuticals. Um, people are is working it being on it used now. At all now? Is, is it I mean, being used? Is it being used in medicine right now? Uh, not. It is being used in medicine now, but quantum computing isn't yet at a practical stage. Uh -huh. uh, we have um, tens of, tens of qubits in computers, not. Uh, right. millions of qubits yet and when we get to the tens of thousands of qubits we're going to start to see some pretty massive applications i think uh, when we get to uh, quantum computing at uh, room temperatures right now because of quantum interference uh, we have super cooled environments where uh, the quantum assessments are made and uh, it may be that using uh, photonic uh, computing uh, uh, rather than electrons will permit room temperature computation, and we can really start moving quickly in the, the domain of, of quantum applications. What other what other areas um, do you see this probably coming to benefit humanity, you know, uh, sooner rather than later outside of medicine? Well, I think the, the question, that's why the book is posed the way it is, uh, which is to say, let's try to define this as a augmentation of human intelligence. The original model coming from the 1950s, where people were trying to get funding to do this strange new thing called artificial intelligence, said our model is uh, AGI, which is basically a notion of human level intelligence, uh, artificial general intelligence. The notion that a uh, visual computer could assess an environment and make sense of it just as a small child could look and sort of get the lay of the land and understand what's going on. My vote is to say it's a mistake to try to model the optimal intelligence of these machines on ourselves, that we should define a form of intelligence that is complementary to the fairly well-known mm -hmm. cognitive biases of human decision-making. Almost like a, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, um, we kind of are, you know, we use devices now. I mean, we walk around and even when I was a kid, we didn't have phones walking around to look up answers to questions we didn't know the answer to right on the spot. Um, but this is, to me, it sounds like what you're suggesting is maybe this is sort of the, the same type of thing, but at a, at a, maybe at a, a, even a much, much more sophisticated level. Is that fair? It is. And let me one way I like to think about this is if we thought about the original computers, they were room size, uh, air conditioned, uh, tube based computational uh, machines in the 1950s. And and then uh, DEC came up with a PDP-11, which is sort of a refrigerator sized computer. And then there was the desktop and then the laptop. And now the 
palm-based, uh, uh, hand-based, uh, uh, mm-hmm. smart telephone. I think we're finding a migration from the room closer and closer to the human so that ultimately we'll have smart glasses that uh, speak to us and uh, help put an overlay in front of our eyes that to explain parts of the environment that we might not correctly understand. And perhaps even ultimately smart contact lenses. So the capacity of us to communicate with a networked intelligence uh, becomes just part of our everyday life. So that when you walk into a room, you the clothes you wear and the speech you enunciate identifies you. And increasingly, your uh, electromagnetic uh, identity, currently the one you use to pay for things when you put your phone down on the, on the, the cradle, uh, will be part of you. And uh, evolutionarily, we have eyes to see uh, light and ears to hear sound. Now we'll have the additional capacity to communicate with our environment with electromagnetic waves. Right, right. Uh, I'm I'm curious, like, what's your what's your? And I I know how to ask you this question, although you know, just because you know where we're at in this world, but like, what are the things that you know, other things that you see happening uh, with the future with quantum computers and with AI that? you know, we're not even thinking about right now for most people, like what, what, what are, what, are, what are your dreams in terms of, you know, your vision on this? Cause obviously you're a guy who thinks, you know, outside the box, but what are some of those types of things that we're not, you know, it, let me just give you an example. You know, I'm, I'm very in, involved right now and interested in longevity science. I've been following that. I firmly believe that in the next, you know, two to three decades, we will have the capacity for human you know biological age reversal i believe that based on the science where we're at right now and when i say that people you know they don't they think i'm out of my mind and i'm like well look at the jetsons go watch the movie you know the the, the cartoon the jetsons and, and all those things we thought were out of our mind this is where we're at with science what's the equivalent of that in your world well you certainly raised an interesting one um the one of these notions that uh, computers have moved from a room-sized box to become part of our the clothes we wear and the glasses we might wear is whether it will actually um, move out inside the human body, inside the uh, our, our our biological barriers into the brain. Uh, you had mentioned Elon Musk. He has a company in, based in San Francisco called Neuralink, where they are doing just that. They're uh, putting uh, electrodes and uh, inside the um, uh, currently, they're working with animals, and I think this is a very promising area for people who have uh, limited capacity with arms and legs, and yeah. so we might like see ALS assistive, or something like that. Yeah. Assistive yeah. technologies, where uh, uh, it the dangers that are inherent in trying to inject various kinds of electronics into the brain uh, might be justified. Um, I'm I find that kind of scary and icky, and I know some people have basically said that the Convergence of machines and humans will end in a singularity where right. we are ultimately moving in that direction. Um, I think I'll focus on concentrating the next 50 years or so before that happens. Yeah. When our technologies are more like our clothes and our tools. Yeah. And um, I'll leave it to you guys to figure out how the singularity. Yeah. Works. Yeah. Yeah. The singularity. Well, hopefully, hopefully the medicine part, we can, you know, you'll be around for that too. So yeah, the, the, the singularity, uh, talk, explain the singularity for people who've never really heard that term. I mean, obviously that's, you know, something that's out there. 
um, the, the term singularity is used in mathematics and in uh, astrophysics, and it gotten adopted by uh, several of the folks that have been looking at the future of, of computational intelligence. Uh, and the notion is that ultimately, if you keep watching the the step of humans and the the technologies they they invent, we will increasingly uh, have more control over our own bodies. So that rather than aging on a predetermined schedule, we'll determine that schedule ourselves. Right. So that's interesting. So that really, uh, there is some congruency there, even with what with the medical the way the medical world is is working right now and where it's toward where it's moving towards. This fellow named uh, Ray Kurzweil, who was a yeah. very successful entrepreneur, inventor, and author, uh, has been talking about the coming singularity. He's got a new book coming out. I thought it was going to come out this year. It looks like it may be another year in process before the new version. Uh, I, I don't know if he's going to call it. It's still coming singularity. Yeah. Uh, he's estimated the year 2047 at one point. Uh, the numbers bounce around a little bit, but it's, you know, in a couple of decades, uh, he sees this uh, predicted convergence. Uh, and it's likely to be more gradual. And uh, those that will be taking advantage of age reversing drugs are likely to be the wealthy elites around the world initially. Yep. Um, the ramifications of a race that doesn't die is raises some very interesting philosophical questions. My hope, that's not my area of expertise. My hope is you can find some yeah. of your colleagues that can address that one. It's something yeah. I pay attention to uh and wonder about uh but uh i'll set that one aside <laughs> yeah ray Kurzweil, Kurzweil is also i think he's been incredibly accurate um with with predictions of the past um more so than than i think people realize i i would also suggest people maybe you know read some of his books but but one of the things that uh, i think that makes him unique is like how quickly he he, he believes that some of these things are going to actually happen and he's basing them on you know his own mathematical models it's not like he's pulling it out of nowhere right so when you put put some of the things he's predicted and usually they move up in time they don't move back <laughs> you know what i mean they're usually going to happen quicker so uh yeah but that's well, you've got you've got a sophisticated audience uh for your uh podcasts and and materials so let's, let's take on a very sophisticated and, and difficult idea which is the notion of exponential growth that Kurzweil puts forward. And he That's basically right. argues that as the computer and figures things out, it will use the fact that it had figured that out to speed up the process of addressing the next question. So because it's uh, multiplicative in its growth. And so the notion is that computers will start reprogramming themselves so that we're not, we're not going to write the next set of instructions for collecting information and, and the uh, transformer algorithms for large language models, the computers themselves will be doing that. And this notion of self-programming generates the kinds of predictions that uh, Kurzweil emphasizes of exponential growth. I'm skeptical of that because um, in order for that process to take place, there has to be information gathering. And you don't just instantly gather all the information. So, there are some constraints on exponential growth, especially in the area of, area of large language models. So, although if you have certain, I guess the question on the, the the information gathering, I guess one of the constraints is if the information is not out there, right? But I guess the the point is that 
you may have the information that you need. And sometimes the real genius is being able to put that information together. And if you're if you're able to do so, for example, going back to the the question of um, you know uh, the the various types of ways that we can attack the the problem of human aging, we we have a lot of data, right? And maybe the computers are the ones, maybe the AI is what is going to help us put that data together and, and get us the information quicker than we would do on our own. What's missing from the way you've characterized it is you need feedback when you say, I think this particular genetic element is critical in determining lifespan. And uh, so you need to test to see if your identification is true. It's that that's what the the, the modeling says. We've got to look at that particular part of the of the genome. And it turns out, well, it's not just that part. It's that part connected with another part and another part and another part. And once you've got four different elements in different combinations, the capacity to test to see if there's an interaction effect among the four requires a lot further data gathering and manipulation, which means you have to move to experimental research rather than just pattern recognition. Right. In in at least I've seen, and, and I don't know if it's real or not, or if it's, you know, just uh, advertising gimmicks, but even in like A-B testing, for example, like when people are looking at how crowds respond, there's some companies that are claiming that they're using AI to, to do the A-B testing before it even goes in front of a real human audience. Is that I mean, how, how do you do that if 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 there's no feedback? I mean, do you just model the feedback? Uh, they may model it, and they may model it correctly, and they may model it incorrectly. Right. Uh, yeah. I think assuming that you can guess what the answers are going to be is not science; it's marketing. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So that's what I thought in a nutshell. But great, um, Russ. This has been really a fascinating conversation for me, totally outside of my world, and I'm sure. Uh, to the, uh, the the world of most, uh, every one of my listeners pretty much. Uh, but I do uh, want to thank you for your time. And again, uh, hope the uh, book uh, does well. It's Evolutionary Intelligence, How Technology Will Make Us Smarter. Uh, certainly a book that sounds like it would be a very interesting book to pick up. Uh, Russ, thanks again for being on Well Formula Podcast. Buck, thanks very much. We'll be right. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, before we go, I do want to remind you that uh, you should, if you have not yet, uh, go to WealthFormula.com and check out all the potential resources there that we have for you. In addition... If you are an accredited investor, uh, that you definitely want to sign up for our investor club. That's where you want to be if you're looking for f potential deal flow. Now, we are doing some very interesting things this year. Traditionally, we have been you know, a real estate-focused um, uh, investor group, and we will continue to do that when it's appropriate. The markets are just still frozen. 
However, this year we've already gotten into uh, commercial aviation, um, you know, buying airplanes for for uh, the likes of British Airways and Air Portugal and, and American Airlines. Uh, we're going to be doing some M&A, mergers and acquisitions, along uh, with uh, Zulfi Ali, who is uh, used to run a sovereign wealth fund in Bahrain. So we've got some serious, uh, seriously uh, heavy hitting kind of stuff coming down the pipe. And if you're interested, you need to join the group. Go to wealthformula.com and sign up for Investor Club. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.